Welcome to the 18th webinar in the MJHS Interprofessional Webinar Series. My name is Alessandra Strada. I'm the Director of Integrated Medicine and Bereavement Services at the MJHS Institute for Innovation in Palliative Care. My topic today is Understanding Existential Distress and Meaning-Oriented Therapies in Patients with Advanced Illness. This is a topic that really highlights the complexities of really adequately addressing uh, psychosocial needs in patients with advanced illness uh, in the palliative care and hospice settings. So I believe it is a topic relevant for all clinicians. I have no disclosures. And what I would like to do today with you is, first of all, review some of the key constructs um, related to existential distress and meaning and some of the frameworks. Uh, to show the relevance to the clinical setting and the work that we do every day with patients and families. We will review ways of recognizing the presence of existential distress in the context of other clinical manifestations, for example, clinical depression. And finally, we will review some of the evidence-based psychotherapeutic interventions that have shown promise in terms of relieving existential distress and improving quality of life for patients and families. Now, this topic today is really grounded in the fifth domain of palliative care, spiritual, religious, and existential aspects of care. And the highlights is really of this domain is the emphasis on the role of spirituality as the fundamental component of care. Um, addressing existential concerns and spiritual needs is a mandate for all palliative care clinicians. Uh, clinicians of different disciplines need to be able to provide some elements of existential and spiritual care to patients and families. And what we're talking about here today is really uh, honoring personal beliefs and practices. It's really about understanding how patients and families conceptualize dignity and what we can do to improve and maintain dignity the way that they understand it. Uh, the emphasis on communication and exploration uh, certainly not on imposing our own existential agenda. Uh, but really, it's a process of exploration of uh, what are the hopes and the values, the fears that patients experience and families experience, but also what are the sources of strength and meaning and purpose that can help them uh, continue on along the journey through illness and all the difficulties that we know uh, are part of, of the journey. Um, Often what happens is that when the situation is really charged and difficult and painful, as it often is when advanced illness is present, uh, people forget, they seem to forget what, how strong they are or what their sources of meaning and purpose are. So the key of what we're going to talk about today is really how do we help patients reconnect with sources of meaning and purpose? identify uh, sources of strength that they had perhaps forgotten, or identify new ones that could be more adaptive and help them uh, in the present journey. Now, Kubler-Ross really, um, I think, spoke eloquently of this existential journey that we all um, embark on in life. Um, and these questions, these existential questions, become more relevant when someone is facing um, advanced illness and death. And she said, Consciously or not, we are all on a quest for answers, trying to learn the lessons of life. We grapple with fear and guilt. We search for meaning, love, and power. We try to understand fear, loss, and time. We seek to discover who we are 
and how we can become truly happy. Now, whether we agree with all the components of this quote or not, I think we probably resonate with the idea that advanced illness and impending death um, almost act like a flashing a light, uh, like a flashlight on this existential domain and really highlighting what the concerns are. And I think people at different times in their life, you know, explore questions about uh, the meaning of life and love. Uh, but advanced illness really may act as a catalyst and really bring these questions to the forefront. Now, we cannot engage in a conversation about existential needs and existential distress without bringing in the construct of spirituality. And as you know, spirituality is a complex construct to talk about. Uh, you probably know there's been a lot more research in the past um, couple of decades, but there are many uh, definitions of spirituality that have been uh, offered, each highlighting different components of what the construct may be. So what I would like to do today uh, for the purpose of this lecture, I will utilize a definition of spirituality that came as a result of a consensus conference where several palliative care clinicians came together and um, created this definition of spirituality based on some of the key components that I had noticed uh, were relevant in the clinical setting. So the definition states that spirituality is the aspect of humanity that refers to the way individuals seek and express meaning and purpose and the way they express their connectedness to the moment, to self, to others, to nature, and or to the significant or sacred. As you will notice from this definition, it's a pretty broad definition, uh, fairly secular. Um, it really highlights meaning and purpose as key elements of spirituality and also connectedness, the importance of being able to connect to the meaning and purpose, but also connect to different sources of meaning and purpose, connecting to the moment of the interaction, connecting to oneself, to others, connecting to nature and also to other constructs such as a higher power or a God or other sources of meaning and purpose. So it's not just about identifying what's important, but also finding a way of connecting to that source of strength. And so in our exploration with patients, we may identify what's important to them, but that's not the only question we need to ask. We need to explore, where, is the patient and the family still able to get support from those sources of meaning and purpose? Or can we facilitate that connectedness uh, somehow? We know that advanced illness has several ramifications. And we also know, I think, those of us working uh, clinically, that existential distress may be very, very complex and difficult to address and may cause a significant pain and despair. Uh, we know that ramifications are physical and emotional social and spiritual. And we know that the individual response in advanced illness is highly personal. It depends on multiple variables. We know that some patients um, look at the journey through illness as an opportunity to increase their self-awareness and psychological growth. Other patients may experience loss of meaning and purpose. They may experience demoralization and despair. And clearly, the same patient may experience moments of increased self-awareness and desire for growth. And then something may happen and the, the same patient may experience despair and existential distress. Wiseman and Warden years ago uh, coined the expression existential plight to really indicate, to uh, describe the existential distress that patients 
diagnosed with cancer uh, may often um, experience. And really, the response and the level of distress is often related to the appraisal of the life threat associated with the disease. And because of the multiple ramifications of advanced illness, there are several existential concerns that patients experience. Um, and as I go through this general list, I would encourage you to think about what are some of the situations, some of the cases that have come up for you uh, where you have faced um, significant existential distress and how was that for you and how difficult was it? Um, for example, if I'm a patient diagnosed with advanced illness, I may start questioning and wondering about the meaning of life. I may have entertained this question during my life, but now that I'm faced um, with my mortality, I may start really wondering because the issue is so close to me that I can no longer ignore it. Or perhaps I don't want to ignore it and I'm entertaining this question. What is the meaning of life? How can I maintain hope in the context, in the face of advanced illness? When hope for cure is gone, when there's no more hope that disease-modifying treatment will be available or even effective, what can I hope for? And interest, interestingly, uh, as you know, hope is a very dynamic construct and it keeps evolving and changing. And as patients get worse, the illness gets worse, uh, I've noticed that hope becomes closer and closer to the moment of experience in the moment. But again, these are questions. What Does it even make sense to continue to hope for something? What is the meaning of death? How can I maintain a sense of personal freedom? when um, the illness is taking over my body and I no longer have control over my body. And it also appears that in the hospital setting, you know, everybody has more control than I do. Doctors and nurses uh, seem to, be, to know so much more about my body and what's going on with me. What is the meaning of freedom in that context? And how can I preserve my dignity? What can I do? Can I still have some element of control? How do I maintain a sense of belonging? How do I stay connected to my community, to my family, to my friends? Um, how do I not um, give in to a sense of alienation and profound despair? And how can I continue to feel support uh, from my sources of strength uh, coming from the religious or spiritual realm? And how can I find support if I am not affiliated with any religious affiliation, association, or spiritual belief? So these are some of the general questions that patients entertain, and I'm sure you have had conversations with patients where this become paramount questions, and really we don't have answers. The key is to help each patient find uh, the answer for themselves to something that can be meaningful and bring them peace. Because the interesting thing about existential concern, or at least this is what I've noticed in my clinical work, is that Entertaining the questions can, um, can be very intense and very emotional for patients. But if patients are not able to somehow reframe the question or find some kind of resolution or some kind of uh, peace uh, as they're contemplating the question, the questions don't just go away. They may trigger a significant amount of distress and anxiety and fear and therefore suffering. And this is where the construct of total pain developed by Cecily Saunders, and I know everybody is aware of this, very familiar with this construct. This is something that we really need to pay attention to. What are the sources of suffering? And can this existential question, if not engaged, not fully entertained, can it translate into suffering and pain? 
So every time we meet with a patient and the family, we really need to be able to communicate that deep connection, to establish a deep connection so that we can understand uh, and identify any sources of suffering in all the different domains, the psychological, social, spiritual, and the physical. And Cecily Saunders actually described existential distress very eloquently. She said, the realization that life is likely to end soon may well stimulate the desire to put first things first and to reach out to what is seen as true and valuable and to give rise to feelings of being unable or unworthy to do so. There may be bitter anger at the unfairness of what is happening and much of what had gone before and above all a desolate feeling of meaninglessness. And this is the essence of existential distress, the profound sense of meaninglessness. Now, the term existential has become part of the lexicon and in palliative care and hospice care, we often talk about this existential construct, existential distress, existential well-being. But where does it come from? So I wanted to give you just a very, very brief review of the evolution of these existential concepts and how they got translated into the healthcare setting. So really, the, just the idea of contemplating uh, existential concerns come from uh, existential philosophy and it's really grounded in that branch of philosophy that engages with the exploration of life's limitation and how and ways of overcoming them, how to overcome life's limitations. And the first limitation that we are aware of as human beings is death, the awareness of death. So one of the questions are how can we fully engage in life knowing that we will die? And so that awareness can generate a sense of awe because of the complexity and the wonder of human life, but also a sense of dread because of the awareness that everything is finite. According to existential philosophers, life really lacks inherent meaning. There's no ultimate meaning that we can really capture. But what is key is our ability as human beings to infuse meaning in each moment of our existence. And this is what existential philosophy is about. Re-identifying identifying ways of overcoming life's limitations by living fully in the present, living with authenticity and freedom and, and dealing with the issues of death and aloneness. So how can we live an authentic life? How can we live a life that really reflects our values and our goals? And remember, these are all the questions that, of course, patients ask themselves in the context of advanced illness as well. How can I continue being authentic? How can I have freedom? What is the meaning of freedom? Um, how can I make sense of death? And how can I make sense of the profound sense of aloneness that human beings can experience? The idea that we are born alone and we die alone, even though dying can be both birth and death, can be community experiences. There is a very personal element of the experience of dying that cannot really be shared. So philosophers such as Kierkegaard and Schopenhauer, Nietzsche and Heidegger really explored these issues. How can be engaged, fully engaged in life, and also uh, the French um, writers such as Camus, uh, what is the meaning of life and death, and what is the, the meaning of possibly contemplating suicide, knowing that this existential distress uh, may come as a result of recognizing life's limitations. 
Now, these constructs were later on uh, translated into a more uh, psychological and psychiatric and psychotherapy domain by some of the therapists and um, psychiatrists and psychologists who have really followed this, um, this, this guidance, this principle of identifying meaning within the meaninglessness uh, of life as they understood it. So people such as uh, Biswanger and Rollo May and Viktor Frankl, I'm, I'm sure uh, you're all familiar with the work of Viktor Frankl, and also uh, Irv Yalom have really written a lot about how can we engage existentially in psychotherapy with patients who experience existential distress. Um, the key is to develop, and I'm saying this because this is really relevant to what we do and how we engage with patients every day. The key is to engage in a profoundly meaningful way a very deep connection, establishing a deep connection with patients and families. Whether we are communicating factual information about the treatment, about the illness itself, the challenge for us and the question for us is how can we make each encounter, each experience, each moment of communication a meaningful moment where the patient and the families are going to feel seen, deeply connected, deeply seen in who they are in their authentic self. There's something, there's a quality about our presence, our clinical presence, therapeutic presence, that can be very healing. Um, and if you think for a moment about, you know, if I were to ask you, uh, think about a person in your life that you have met, a person you know, who has, you know how we call it, a healing energy, uh, those people that you feel just good being in their presence. They make you feel good. They make you feel good about yourself. They make you feel good about and hopeful about the future, about the present. And in their present, you somehow feel um, rejuvenated and that you have the strength to continue on. That's the kind of healing presence that we want to provide to our patients and families, no matter what the content of the communication is. And this healing presence would really help them uh, fully engage and being present in the moment and, and also there's some level of existential well-being that we can convey by engaging authentically and, and meaningfully with them at each opportunity. I wanted now to shift to a different model, so we're talking about meaning a lot here and um, there's a different, another framework that I wanted to share with you, uh, more recent, really grounded in psychosocial um, uh, theory and psychological theory. So the meaning-making model, um, according to this model, there are two types of meaning, which is right the essence. Um, there's global meaning and situational meaning. Now, global meaning is the general meaning, uh, ways of perceiving, the way people perceive themselves and the world and the general rules about, you know, for example, good things happen to good people and good people should not have bad things happen to them, general laws about how the universe um, functions. And then there's situational meaning, which is really how people respond to challenges in the moment, stressful situations. How can they make meaning of this challenge? And for example, a diagnosis of serious illness or a diagnosis of cancer can really challenge the global meaning about the way the world should function. So stress, according to this model, really comes as a result of the discrepancy between global meaning and situational meaning. So what the patient has to do, the kind of psychological work that they may be engaged in, patients and families, is really to either reframe their understanding of global meaning 
or reframe the situational meaning, finding a ways to create a better match between the global and the situational so that the patient can continue to experience a sense of coherence and a grounded sense of self. And briefly, I also wanted to review uh, the framework for meaning developed by Vito Franco. This is so relevant because uh, we will talk about some of the therapies later on that have been um, really inspired by Victor Franco's approach. And Victor Franco is very well known for the book Men's Search for Meaning, where he described uh, his experience in the concentration camps and how he maintained a sense of meaning and purpose in life in light of being in the camps and also losing his entire family. And after that experience, also developed a tremendous body of work, which is logotherapy, his therapeutic approach. And when he talks about meaning, he also looks at ultimate meaning, he identifies two types of meaning, ultimate meaning and the meaning of the moment. So ultimate meaning, according to Frankel, is really something general about the universe, pretty much like global meaning. Um, the order of the universe, for example, a sense of God, that what I do matters as a human being. But according to Frankel, the ultimate meaning cannot really proved, be proved or disproved. Um, use the metaphor of the horizon. Like the horizon, the closer we get, the farther it recedes. You cannot really capture the global meaning of life, but what we can capture and be more in control of is the meaning of the moment, is the way we react at each moment of our life when we have crucial decisions or choices or we face, we are faced with something very challenging, we can choose how to react to the circumstances. And in that ability to respond in a way that's meaningful to us lies freedom, the essence of freedom. And this is why he said, for the meaning of life differs from man to man, from day to day, and from hour to hour. What matters, therefore, is not the meaning of life in general, but rather the specific meaning of a person's life at a given moment. And this is where we have an opportunity to ease the existential distress by engaging with the patient and the family and really helping them make, create meaning at each moment and during each interaction. Now, existential distress can be uh, present in the context of depression, but it can also be present in patients who are not clinically depressed. And this is the challenge of recognizing the difference. Sometimes it's not really um, easy to recognize the difference, but I just wanted to offer kind of a diagnostic uh, tip. Um, existential distress has also been called in other settings demoralization. Um, Feeling demoralized is more like a syndrome characterized by the perceived inability to cope, uh, subjective incompetence, um, helplessness, hopelessness, and meaninglessness versus clinical depression um, where the patient is primarily feeling anhedonia, low mood and anhedonia, so the decreased pleasure or inability to experience pleasure in activities that used to be uh, pleasurable for the patient. So demoralization has been proposed as uh, an, an, an entity, a diagnostic entity, characterized by really, by really this loss of meaning and purpose. And the, on the positive side, uh, when there is a loss of meaning and purpose, patients can respond to interventions that are designed to improve the sense of meaning and purpose that was lost or forgotten or that they feel disconnected from. 
And this is why in this final uh, moment of this lecture, I would like to briefly review some of the meaning-oriented therapies that have really focused, have been designed to improve a sense of meaning and purpose. <coughs> Excuse me. And just a little caveat, just a few couple of comments. Now, these therapies that I'm going to review um, were originally developed for uh, patients with cancer, but actually the framework is flexible enough that uh, it can be adapted and utilized for patients who have other types of illnesses. And also I need to clarify that the four therapies that I will briefly review are based on the th psychotherapeutic uh, model. They've been randomized control studies, uh, but there are other therapies in the integrative domain, such as music therapy, for example, and art therapy, that are really focused on meaning and incredibly effective and powerful for relieving uh, existential distress. So anything that uses music and the arts can really go to the core of, of a human uh, connectedness. And we know, and I know that you have uh, probably watched the webinars uh, in the past um, that have really highlighted the power and the, the healing potential of music therapy and art therapy. But today we're going to review the meaning-making intervention, calm therapy, meaning-centered psychotherapy, and dignity therapy. The meaning-making intervention was really developed um, based on the cognitive processing of trauma, and it was also influenced by Frankel's work on meaning. And the idea is that a diagnosis of cancer or serious illness is a traumatic event that threatens a person's life schema, uh, more like the global meaning. Um, being diagnosed with a serious illness threatens an individual's uh, sense of how the world is supposed to function. So this therapy consists of four sessions of two hours each, and there are three phases of engagement. During the first phase, there is rapport building and sense of safety, which promotes control. Um, then challenges that the patient may have experienced in the past uh, are reviewed, as well as the coping mechanisms that have been utilized, so that the patient can make a connection between how they responded to challenges in the past, and they can translate those sources of strength and those coping skills uh, to the present and the future. And also there is a phase where the patient makes this commitment to life, kind of a no matter what quality, and finding a way of continuing to engage in the face of um, serious illness and the challenges. And studies have indicated that patients who receive this therapy um, have um, experience improvement in self-esteem and in sense of meaning, and especially in patients with breast cancer, colorectal cancer, and ovarian cancer. CALM therapy, CALM stands for managing cancer and living meaningfully. It's based on the supportive, expressive, cognitive, existential, and meaning model. That's a very dynamic form of therapy. It really promotes affect regulation and problem solving and exploration of challenging issues. And there are several domains that are explored within this therapy. One is the symptom management and communication with healthcare providers. And this is paramount because clearly we know that if patient symptoms are not managed, uh, existential distress and depression will uh, ensue. We also know that if patients are not able to effectively communicate with healthcare providers, they will feel alienated, they will feel alone, they will feel confused, and uh, it's going to be very challenging to improve and maintain a sense of meaning. Um, also, the therapy addresses change in self, in the sense of self, and relationships with others who are close to the patient. 
and also a sense of meaning and purpose and future and mortality. So some of the difficult existential questions are engaged and are entertained gently and gently explored in the context of this therapy. And studies have indicated that patients who have received this therapy have um, indicated a reduction in depressive symptoms and death anxiety over time and also an improvement in spiritual well-being over time. Meaning-centered psychotherapy was also developed based on Frankl's work on meaning and the, really the purpose of this therapy is to help patients uh, and families reconnect with a sense of meaning, reconnect, identify and enhance a sense of meaning. Some of the sources of meaning that are explored in the therapy are creativity, experience, attitude and history. And uh, some of the studies have indicated that patients have expressed decreased hopelessness and decreased desire for hasten death and symptom distress. There are two formats for this therapy, a group format and individual format. It's an eight-week intervention versus seven, but really the format of the, of the therapy is quite flexible and it can be adapted to the inpatient settings and the sessions can be shortened and some key elements can be covered. If, um, the patient cannot sustain uh, a long therapy sessions. So the different sources of meaning are explored. The patient is um, guided through a series of psychoeducational experiential exercises that are geared towards identifying sources of meaning, reconnecting, enhancing, and discovering. And finally, dignity therapy, which has re uh, received a lot of attention recently because feasibility and acceptability study of this um, therapy uh, really, uh, really indicated very good results, um, very acceptable to patients and also caregivers, um, and really focuses on dignity, which is conceptualized as a state of being worthy and honored or esteemed. Uh, we know that loss of dignity has been associated with feelings of depression, degradation, hopelessness, and desire for death. We also know that loss of dignity or fear of loss of dignity is a central concern in patients requesting physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. So in the context of this therapy, the patient dignity inventory was developed and the dignity model was also developed that is really focused on identifying concerns that patients have about dignity and also a dignity concerning repertoire. So there are, there is a um, question protocol, several questions that therapist meets with the patient and ask them several questions related to uh, their sense of dignity or moments, for example, in life where they felt um, that they're most proud of their accomplishments and, for example, when did you feel most alive? And the therapist verbatim transcribes the document and then gives it back to the patient for review. And then this becomes a legacy, uh, a generativity document that is given to loved ones. And actually some studies have indicated that bereaved caregivers have felt that this was very meaningful and helpful during the grieving process in bereavement after the death of the patient. So I hope this really brief review was just uh, you know, designed to tease you, pique your interest, and hopefully um, you will want to know more about these therapies and hopefully probably applying some of these principles in your own practice. And I would like to end uh, this presentation uh, with a brief case example, uh, Connie, and of course the name has been changed. And Connie was a 55-year-old woman with advanced pancreatic cancer. She was diagnosed with cancer that already metastasized to, 
to the liver. Now, her history was interesting and very difficult. Her husband was killed by a drunk driver a year prior to her diagnosis, uh, but she also had lost uh, her five-year-old daughter um, in a car accident six years prior. She uh, was an atheist and felt discriminated against. Um, she used to say that she was she had to be in the closet because people it wasn't easy for her to say that she didn't believe in God. So therefore, it was e difficult and more challenging for her to reach out for support. And therapy with, with Connie to address existential distress related to her own diagnosis and poor prognosis and all the losses in her life uh, was, was interesting. She, she would say things such as, the issue of meaning has no meaning for me. And we become very irritated in any attempt of exploring personal beliefs or, or spiritual values. Uh, but what she would say was, um, the only question that matters to me, and this is verbatim from one of the sessions, the only question that matters to me is, can you show up for me, me being the therapist? Can you be with me through my despair without trying to change it? So this is what uh, was important to Connie, the therapist's ability to be ultimately present and grounded. And there's, again, as I said earlier, a quality of the therapeutic presence that is really healing and can be very powerful. She felt seen in her despair. Because at times, um, we may become so focused on techniques and utilizing a novel psychological therapeutic technique, we may become task-focused. And that may take away from our ability to fully express that grounded, deeply connected presence that can really relieve existential distress. And a lot of what we do in palliative care really speaks to that presence. Uh, so the therapeutic stance with Connie required ultimate authenticity and presence. She would say things such as, give me absolute presence. Now one technique, one modality that was utilized with Connie was hypnosis to mitigate, and she wanted to use that to mitigate the impact of intrusive memories. She wanted to reach a level of what she called equilibrium. She didn't like the word peace because she was deconstructing all of these constructs that didn't make sense to her. She wanted equilibrium. She didn't want the distress of the memories about the husband, the traumatic component of that loss. Uh, so some of the engagements were making tea, mindful activities, so really observing how the tea leaves would soak in and absorb the water and would respond after receiving the water. So there were a lot of mindfulness exercises or looking at the texture of flowers. And Connie didn't want fresh flowers at her bedside. When the flowers began to die, she felt that that was a more comforting presence because it was, was really in alignment with what she was experiencing in her um, approaching death. So it was an exercise of ultimate mindfulness. And I'm, I mention this case because it kind of deconstructs some of the uh, ideas that we have about how we can always relieve suffering. We really need to pay attention to what the patient wants and what makes sense to them. It's not about our agenda, but it's about their story and their journey and what is meaningful to them. And this is why I would like to end with another quote from Kubler-Ross, which I find quite refreshing actually. She said, acceptance should not be mistaken for a happy stage. It is almost void of feelings. For some patients, acceptance looks very different. For other patients, it looks like a, a place of equilibrium, as Connie would say, or peace. But again, it's about discovering their uniqueness and not imposing your own agenda.
So in conclusion, existential needs are paramount. We all always need to consider these needs in patients with advanced illness. Existential distress is primarily related to loss of meaning and purpose in life. And psychotherapy interventions that are designed to improve, enhance, facilitate the discovery of a sense of meaning can effectively relieve existential distress. And certainly as clinicians, our goal should be to walk side by side with the patient and the family, honoring them without press giving them the gifts of our presence and our knowledge, but also never imposing our own agenda, but valuing and honoring their uniqueness. Thank you so much for your attention. And now I would like to open this up for questions, and I will give you a moment or two to gather your thoughts. So one question asks, can you say more about demoralization? Now, this is a very good question, and I know I mentioned it briefly. Um, demoralization was originally uh, developed as a concept that was developed in the 60s uh, by Jerome Frank. And he described it as one of the main reasons why people um, seeked psychotherapy. It was a syndrome where the patient felt a sense of perceived incompetence, like they couldn't deal, they couldn't cope with what they were facing. Uh, a sense of meaninglessness, um, hopelessness, and helplessness perceived incompetence, quite common in patients who had experienced severe bodily disfigurement and chronic illness. Um, now there's been a, an attempt in the, in the research literature to um, um, facilitate the introduction of existential distress through demoralization syndrome as an entity, a diagnostic entity uh, in the DSM. Um, it is not, but many clinicians will recognize the presence of demoralization, which has also been described as a way of giving up. The patient gives up, and often we notice that in patients who put a tremendous amount of effort, for example, Patients who describe themselves as fighters and they fight through very painful treatments and they put out all this energy because they hope for certain results. And if the results are not actually uh, becoming concrete at the end or the results are different or negative, they become very demoralized. The letdown can be so profound. So it's a very interesting syndrome. And again, look out for this cluster of meaninglessness and hopelessness and helplessness. Um, however, on the positive side, patients who are um, experiencing demoralization are somewhat able to engage, to continue uh, to engage. So they may respond to psychotherapy interventions that can um, enhance their sense of competency and meaning in life. Thank you for that question. So another question, very, very interesting. What can we do if we do not have access uh, to someone who can offer the therapies that I reviewed? Um, well, this is a very good question because um, there are two things that I, I would recommend. Number one, uh, trainings are available in the therapies that I reviewed. Um, contacting the developers is always uh, the best way, but I do know that trainings are available in dignity therapy, meaning center psychotherapy. Uh, there are books uh, also available to clinicians. And um, so that's one uh, opportunity to become actually formally trained. And then, of course, um, if your goal is not that of um, conducting a randomized control study, but you want to utilize this therapy in the clinical setting, then you can really um, extrapolate the essence of the therapy and um, 
make sure that you that you utilize some of those techniques in your clinical work. Um, some uh, community, even community hospitals, have um, sometimes sent a number of their clinicians to become trained, and then it becomes kind of train the trainer model, uh, so that the culture of the institution becomes more infused with uh, with these approaches. So this is one uh, of the things that one can do. Uh, becoming trained and also applying some of the principles. A lot of questions related to training. Are these therapies appropriate to teenagers? Um, this is a very, very good question um, because teenagers do experience existential distress. They may ask questions. So they certainly are and they're geared, they can be geared towards teenagers and just really understanding what their journey is. Um, for teenagers and children, there are also other modalities that um, can be recommended, such as modalities related to the arts and music, because we know that teenagers are not necessarily primarily uh, focused on the verbal modality. So children and adolescents can very much resonate with a different type of approach that somehow bypasses the verbal modality, or the verbal modality can be a component of that experience, um, but it's not only focused on expressing one's emotions, but getting to the emotion and getting to the sense of meaning through art and through music can be uh, very, very meaningful for teenagers. So I would really open it up and um, look at a broader uh, perspective that includes arts and music and, and somatic modalities as well um, with teenagers. Can we say that this existential distress constitutes the majority of spiritual pain this is a very good question, and I think it speaks to the fact that all these terms are often used interchangeably. Existential distress is a component of spiritual distress, I would say. If we conceptualize spiritual distress as utilizing that definition that I used at the beginning, meaning the lack of loss of meaning and purpose, um, and also uh, lack of connectedness. Uh, but I want to introduce an element that I did not discuss in this lecture, which is the religious element. I mean, spiritual distress um, can come also from feeling disconnected from a higher power, feeling disconnected from God, and beginning to question why, why is God punishing me, or conceptualizing the illness as punishment, or feeling just really disconnected from the source of strength. So then it becomes more focused, the existential distress is more expressed through uh, religious and spiritual concerns. And so we need to really pay attention, what is the core feature of the existential distress? At the end, it's all about uh, the way we conceptualize existence and the way we make meaning of what is happening to our lives. And then what are the different ramifications and different components of the distress is something that the clinician needs to explore uh, gently with, uh, in their engagement with the patient and the family. So this is all the time that we have for questions today. Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions and for your participation and for your attention. And I just wanted to remind you that we are always available to interact with you via email if you have additional questions that unfortunately I wasn't able to, to address today. So I would love to, to keep the communication going if you would like. So what I would like to do um, at this point is announce the next webinar. The next webinar will be titled Pain Assessment and Cultural Diversity and will be presented by Dr. Lara Dingra on June 25, 2015 at 12.30.
I would also like to remind you to please fill out your webinar evaluation. Uh, these webinars evaluations really help us with future planning and it, they help us um, improve the activities that we offer. And I hope to see you next time. Thank you.